Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Hey, listening friends, Jack here. And I would like to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode. And that sponsor is Atlas. Atlas is a branding, web development, and content marketing agency. As a business owner, your day-to-day is uncharted enough. From branding and web design to content marketing, Atlas will help you navigate this digital terrain with ease. In today's world, social media is a great tool. However, you need to have a concrete, focused plan on how to use it. And that's where Atlas comes in. Atlas can help you navigate this modern digital world. And on top of that, Atlas can also help you with traditional means of marketing. So if you would like to book your free consultation, please visit atlasokc.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-O-K-C.com for your free consultation. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. Lars is back for another exciting episode of Science with Lars. Woohoo. Insert spooky music here. No. <laughs> hey, Lars, how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. I'm sitting outside on my porch, listening to the birds sing and uh, looking at a beautiful blue sky. That's That's what we want, because winter is coming to quote the starks from game of thrones (laughs) so it is but in the meantime we can enjoy the fall yes yes and the best part about the fall is as somebody who barbecues and considers himself maybe not a pit master maybe a pit journeyman it means (laughs) it's a cheese smoking season here in oklahoma which is fantastic because smoked cheese is glorious so nice. That, that I got a weekend full of cheese. My wife is literally at the store right now buying $150 of cheese because I sold so much of it. So, oh wow, yeah, sounds like a good business. <laughs> yeah, I told her to uh, not do self checkout to go to a human, so just so she could see how big the person's eyes get. <laughs> 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 anyway, <laughs> enough about cheese. <laughs> I will. Uh, I will pass the uh, the podcast over to you so you can start talking about whatever this topic of today is. I'm looking forward to, to learning some more stuff. So here you go. Consider me serving the ball over to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Well, as I have threatened to do in the last couple episodes uh, in this series, uh, today I'm finally going to talk about the philosophy of science. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. It's one of the things that... Uh, I would say it's one of the topics that's really helped change my life for the better uh, because understanding that science isn't just people sitting around in lab coats and pouring liquid from one beaker to another and and is actually a philosophical discipline. It really helps frame what we know and how we know it uh, in ways that you just don't get if you don't really have an understanding of what's happening in science. So, you know, a lot of people, as I mentioned, they hear science, they think people, in lab coats, they think uh, Large Hadron Collider, 
and other big engineering projects. And these things are obviously all part of the process of science. But at its core, science is a branch of philosophy. Uh, the difference with other branches of philosophy is that it is based on assumptions and ideas about the physical world around us. So with that out of the way, let's back up a bit and talk about what these terms mean, right? If you're, especially if you're in a philosoph philosophical discussion, it's really important to define your terms, right? Yeah, the, the so, terms are always good to know at the beginning, so. Yes, so what is philosophy? Well, the, the word as we use it now comes from Greek words, meaning love of wisdom. Uh, more generally, it refers to uh, an outlook that people have on how to live their life and how to evaluate ideas. It helps us ask better questions, find better answers, test existing ideas, come up with new ideas, understand ourselves and the world around us. So people might have a philosophy rooted in culture, in religion, in empiricism, in any sort of outlook that you might have. And the philosophy of science is one that is rooted in empiricism, the observation of the natural physical world. So what then is science? What what distinguishes it among the many branches of philosophy? Well, it comes from Latin in this case, uh, the word scientia, meaning knowledge. Um, and as I have mentioned a few times, there's not one overarching agreed upon definition, right? And the definition that I've used in the last couple episodes, which I'm going to continue to use uh, until and unless some eminent philosopher of science comes and corrects me, is that it's the process of acquiring knowledge of the natural world by the systematic testing hypotheses against observation. And once more, we got to define our terms, make sure we understand what we're talking about. So knowledge is any justifiable belief with predictive power, meaning that if you ask me how I know something, I should be able to tell you why, and you should be able to use those same reasons to come to the same conclusion. If not, then maybe I didn't really know what I was talking about. What is the natural world? Well, it's basically all we can observe directly or indirectly. Uh, it does not include anything uh, spiritual or religious or otherwise um, supernatural. It doesn't include anything that is purely conceptual. Any idea you have in science has to have some sort of reference to the physical world around us. Now, it doesn't have to be something you can just obviously take a look at uh, as, for example, uh, electrons, the electronic backbone of the internet that we're using to have this conversation now well, you can never actually directly look at an electron. You can get images that it might produce, but you can't actually look at one. So how do we know they exist? Well, that's something that's been discovered scientifically, and maybe we'll go into that in a future episode. And what then does it mean to be systematic? So it's done according to some particular system or plan in a repeatable way. So if I have an observation and I look at my computer and I notice that it has a standard Windows 104 keyboard layout, I don't actually know if it does. I haven't counted these particular keys on this particular computer. I think it actually has 106, if I had to guess. Um, then someone else should be able to come and look at it and come to the same conclusion, right? It's systematic. I've written, I've recorded my observations in some way, and someone else could repeat them given the same set of circumstances. What then does it mean to test an idea? Well, to determine its validity. If I have an idea about, again, the number of keys on my keyboard, well, I should be able to say, I think it is 106 keys, and then I ought to be able to actually count them and find out if it is, in fact, 106. Again, I'm not positive. I have not actually counted the keys on this keyboard that I'm looking at. So if I'm testing, what am I testing? I'm testing a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a an idea that explains some existing data, such as there is a keyboard in front of me, and makes predictions about more data, such as 
this keyboard I think has 106 keys. Other laptops of the same model ought to have 106 keys. Again, it's just one example, not a terribly important one, but that is the method. And finally, what is an observation? Well, an observation is just any recorded physical interaction with your senses. Uh, obviously, as organic beings, we are limited in our experience by what we get from our senses. If I were not able to see, all the explanation in the world would not help me understand what it is like to see. Um, and, you know, we know, for example, that there are organisms that have senses that we don't, uh, like an electroreceptive or magnetic sense, organisms that can see colors that we can't. And we can maybe make instruments to help detect these things for us and turn them into something that we can understand with our senses. So we can get uh, a, a Gauss meter to determine a magnetic field and turn that into visual representation that our eyes can understand, but we can't feel the magnetic field ourselves the way migrating birds can, for example. Right. So, it's, it's like uh, dolphins using sonar. Yeah, you know, we just don't have use that. sonar, but dolphins just naturally have that ability. Correct. And they they turn that sonar ping into a visual representation that our eyes can understand. Although, incidentally, uh, humans can echolocate to an extent, uh, particularly people who are born without sight. Uh, they can learn how to click or use a machine to click and actually get a pretty good idea of their surroundings just from the sound that they get back. But usually our brains aren't trained to do that. So right. we don't have yeah. that as a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that, that is important, right? It's whatever we experience, we are limited by our biological senses. Right. There's, yeah. there's no way around that. <clears throat> and one of the things I've always thought cool is that obviously because we're earthlings, life evolved here. But our sense of scale is completely based upon the Earth. Mm -hmm. If we were to actually send a ship to Jupiter, Jupiter is so large, the human brain just can't comprehend how large it is. You know, they can do pictures of this is Jupiter, this is Earth, see how, and all mm -hmm. that. You just can't comprehend the sheer scale. Not even a little. Because as humans, you know, we have nothing to actually base that on. Right. Right. Now, if, if we'd evolved on a moon orbiting Jupiter, I think we'd have a very different understanding of yes. it. <laughs> um, and there there is some reason to think that some of the moons orbiting Jupiter may, in fact, harbor some kind of life. Probably not intelligent, uh, right. civilized life the way we understand it. But there is at least a possibility that some of them might have something that has replication and evolution, as we talked about in our first science episode, that would qualify as life. Yeah, yeah. And when the Europa Clipper gets there in a couple of years, that'll be groundbreaking for discoveries on a Jupiter moon. Yeah, just don't watch uh, the movie The Europa Report first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do not do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, for that's... those not aware, it's a it's a low budget but interesting sci-fi movie uh, where they send a mission to Europa and things don't go well. Yeah, no, it does not. It's actually a pretty good premise for the movie. And considering it was low budget, the uh, special effects were pretty good in it, too. Yeah, I, I liked it. So anyway, um, we we side quested. So we we, we, we have side quested a little bit. Yes. <laughs> so th those are those are my definitions out of the way. Um, you know, feel free to rewind, listen to them again if you want to make sure you understand what I'm talking about, and feel free to disagree because I'm not a philosopher and I'm not even a practicing scientist. I just study this stuff a lot in my spare time. So what do other scientists have to say about this? Well, uh, the famous physicist Richard Feynman. Uh, probably the architect of what we now understand as quantum electrodynamics or quantum mechanical theory. He said, philosophy of science is as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. So not, not the most ringing endorsement there. Uh, let's take a look at uh, Lawrence Krauss, another famous physicist. 
The worst part of philosophy is the philosophy of science. The only people, as far as I can tell, that read work by philosophers of science or other philosophers of science. It has no impact on physics whatsoever. So not all scientists are really enamored with the idea of the philosophy of science, but I still think it is important, and I'm going to hopefully explain why. So yeah, what yeah, is then I'm, the philosophy of science? Yes. <laughs> right. Why, why is science a philosophical discipline? Why do I think that's important? Well, it is the application of philosophical principles to scientific investigation. It helps us answer questions like what distinguishes science from other disciplines? What qualifies as a hypothesis? What are the testable ideas from a hypothesis? What might falsify a hypothesis? What qualifies as scientific knowledge? When is a claim of knowledge justified? Is scientific knowledge more reliable than other types of knowledge? Or what is good experimental design? These are all important things that if you want to be a good practitioner of science, you should be able to answer. And so even if you don't necessarily realize that, yes, this is in fact a philosophical endeavor, you're a good scientist is going to put these, these ideas into practice. So what distinguishes then science from other disciplines? Well, as mentioned before, it is empirical. That means it is based on observation of the natural world, either directly with our senses or more commonly today using some kind of instrument that we've already tested to be reliable. It often uses inference to produce explanations of phenomena that can't be directly observed to account for phenomena that can be observed. So as I mentioned before, for example, electrons are too small to ever observe directly. And yet we are so confident that they are real and have certain properties that we've built basically our entire communications and financial infrastructure on them over the last 40 years, or maybe even longer. Yeah, I guess banks really started switching to computers in the 60s, so more like 60 years. So what exactly do I mean by inference? Inference is just when you take a bunch of ideas that all seem to come together in the same way and say, I think this is likely true within a certain, uh, a certain purview. So we look at all these observations we make of experiments on atoms, which again, we couldn't necessarily observe directly, um, or experiments on chemicals and with energy moving through them in a certain way, and you come to the conclusion, I think there are these tiny particles that I'm going to call electrons that carry a charge that I will call negative, and they operate in these particular ways, and I can use that to, for example, build a computer. Um, so also other things that are difficult to observe directly, and yet we can infer their causes, things like diseases, right? There, You've probably heard of the germ theory of disease, the idea that many diseases in humans and other organisms are caused by uh, tiny organisms or at least organism-like things that we can't actually directly observe. This is a big shift from the idea that they were caused by supernatural forces like demons or curses or witches or something. Yeah. Have you ever heard the story of the uh, first surgeon guy that was like, hey, we need to start washing our hands? Uh, yeah, I think you're referring <laughs> to uh, Semmelweis, who eventually uh, ended up in a in a asylum for the mentally ill. And I think he committed suicide. It was not great. Yeah, I can't think of his name. He worked in a maternity ward and they couldn't yeah, figure yeah, out it was why. Some, some, some yeah, was. the women would give birth and then they would get sick and die. Well, because the in the morning, the doctors were all farting around with cadavers and they didn't wash their hands and they go up and this guy's like i've noticed when i wash my hands before they give birth that the women don't get sick mm -hmm. so he went and presented his data to this big symposium and the surgeons were the other doctors were so mad that they beat the crap out of them yeah he, he was this well partly because uh being a doctor was a gentlemanly profession and it, it was unseemly to imply that a gentleman might be dirty in some way yeah yeah so, so uh, anyway that, that's that, part of it <laughs> yeah so be careful when you're asserting your uh viewpoints yeah. in a 
some areas. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, evolution, right? We can't necessarily, we can't observe the entire history of life in our own lifetime, uh, right. but we can make a lot of inferences about it based on the evidence that we have, the fossils and the genetics, as mentioned in our previous episode. Yep. yep. Um, and or the history of the universe, like the one, uh, the most recent science episode, all kinds of things that we can't observe directly. I mean, until the famous uh, blue marble shot, or at least until we sent cameras into space, there was never an entire photo of the Earth being round. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, and yet we were quite sure, so sure that it was round that the entire financial and communications structure was built around that idea. Yep. With yep. with uh, you know, transatlantic cables and things like that and shipping around the world. Again, this is the... So th this, hopefully, I, uh, I'm getting at the importance of what science does for us, right? It lets us right. take make ideas about the world, and if they pass the tests, then we can use them to better our lives, right? Well, because, you know, as with the idea of the world being round, well, once that was established by scientific means, in other words, making observations and doing experiments, even, be even before it was observed directly, we were able to um, use that knowledge for commerce, for communication, for navigation, you know, all these things are benefits of learning about science. I, I am a, I both appreciate science, uh, you know, as just the generation of knowledge, but also for the way in which it helps us improve our lives. Right. I think both aspects of it are important because oftentimes knowledge that is gained, even with no apparent immediate benefit can have a benefit later on. Yes. Yep. And one final thing that is really important about science and this is something that people who don't necessarily like scientific results will often point to and act like it's a big problem, is that scientific findings are always tentative, meaning they could right. be falsified with new data. So if I had this idea that the Earth is round, well, if we send up a camera into space and took a picture and turns out it was actually a cube, well, it would be falsified. I would have been wrong. Now, I don't know how you could possibly be wrong with all the data that was gathered up to that point, but in theory, a full-out picture of the Earth showing that it was in fact a cube would have falsified the idea that it was round, right? Yes, correct. Um, and for any good scientific idea, someone who understands it well ought to be able to come up with observations that if they were made, would falsify it. So for example, with Big Bang cosmology that we talked about last time, if it were found that when you look even further, for example, as, we're, as they're doing now with the James Webb Space Telescope, even further than the furthest currently observed galaxies and found that out beyond a particular range, they started getting blue shifted again. Well, that would falsify the expansion idea of Big Bang cosmology. Uh, as you may recall, the blue shift means that the galaxies are moving toward us, whereas red shift means that they are moving away. So, uh, you know, if there was a point at which they started becoming blue shifted again, that would suggest that perhaps there were bubbles of expansion and contraction and not the expansion from a singularity as is currently the prevailing model of the universe. Same with evolution. If you were to observe something like a griffin with uh, eagle wings and lion tail, that would falsify evolution because you couldn't inherit something like that from one lineage where these two different traits had evolved uh, because feathers evolved in dinosaurs and fur evolved in mammals. And they evolved separately long after those two groups had stopped sharing a gene pool. Now, of course, we've never actually seen a griffin, but if we did, that would be a big blow against evolutionary theory. So, yeah, seeing a griffin, while that would be cool, it would also be it, terrifying. Yes, it would, it would be very strange. Um, <laughs> I would not not actually want to see a griffin. Uh, I must commend uh, Harry Potter for writing Buckbeak in the movie, right? Right, right. 
So, yes. <laughs> so yeah, to go into a little more depth from earlier, what's a hypothesis? What makes an idea a hypothesis as opposed to just a guess or a an idle musing, right? Well, it's, it is a guess in a sense. It's a, an educated guess, though, based on existing knowledge. And you should be able to phrase it as an if, then, and because statement. So that means that you have this idea that if this idea is true, then I should be able to make these other observations, and they should be true. And it should be because something is happening, even if I can't see what that thing is directly. So if the Earth is round, then ships sailing over the horizon should disappear bottom up because that's the way something would appear on a curve if you are observing it going away from you, right? If yes, yes. all life on Earth is descended from a common ancestor, then they should all share similar biochemistry because inheritance means that traits are passed from one generation to the next and new traits can't just appear out of nowhere. And that is what we observe, right? So that's what a hypothesis is. It can be, any, it can be something very trivial, to like, you know, how many keys are on my keyboard to the very profound, like the history of the entire universe. But all these things need to be able to be understood in a sense of if, then, and because. So if you can't phrase an idea that way, then it probably doesn't really qualify as a scientific hypothesis. Oh, and as I mentioned, it does need to be because, or based on existing data, right? So if it's not based on some existing observation, then you're just pulling it out of your nether regions, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> you have to have some reason to propose a hypothesis in the first place. Uh, otherwise, there's not really much to test. Uh, and this is the problem with a lot of religious or spiritual ideas about the world. There's nothing that would suggest them in the first place. There's nothing to base it on. And unsurprisingly, ideas based on that never tend to get anywhere in the sciences because right. they, they don't have a basis for proposing them in the first place, let alone testing or verifying them. Right, right. And so if you have a hypothesis and it passes your test, you say, I should be able to observe X, Y, and Z, and I observe X, Y, and Z, and I don't observe A, B, and C that would falsify it. Well, then we start to think this hypothesis is probably close to true. Again, as mentioned before, it is tentative. It might be wrong. Something may come along that shows that it was actually mistaken. But at least for now, we can start operating as if this is true, especially if when you operate as if it's true, you're able to make new hypotheses and get new knowledge that also works in application, you gain confidence that it's true. Going back to the idea that we've been mentioning several times, once we have this idea that there are electrons and we've confirmed by experiment that the phenomena we're observing are all consistent with the hypothesis of electrons, we can start turning that into more knowledge. We can build telegraphs, we can build computers, we can build a James Webb Space Telescope. All of these things rely on the idea that there are these subatomic particles called electrons that carry a negative charge. So, you know, again, if you falsify some of these ideas, then you might have to go back to the drawing board on a whole bunch of ideas that are all built on this previous one. Uh, as mentioned in the last episode with Big Bang Cosmology, a lot of times science progresses by going back to the drawing board and re-examining baseline assumptions that you just kind of thought were true that maybe hadn't been tested well enough. Correct. So, Correct. That's one of the things that... Um... I don't know. People are always like, the Bible is unchanging. Well, maybe you should change because new information comes. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't the, use an the same. owner. Yeah, I wouldn't use an owner's manual for a chariot on a, you know, Ford. 
explore. No, no, it would not be a good <laughs> idea. And more generally, just just because knowledge is ancient, that doesn't necessarily make it true. It doesn't necessarily make it false. It just means that that's it's an right. idea that's stuck around for a long time. And sometimes ideas that stick around for a long time work pretty well. Sometimes they don't. And it takes discernment and effort to sometimes sort between those. And I don't want to say, you know, that it's just a matter of people who uh, revere the Bible because you see that happening in many different religions. You see that oh, happening yeah, in yeah. non-religious ideological systems. Uh, a lot of politicians, for example, they just assume that the tenets of their party are correct and they don't do any investigation on it. And they just assume that their ideas will give the best outcomes without bothering to see if the outcomes that they observe when basing laws on those ideas actually are better. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You need to be able to uh, take that next step in the thought process and not just stop at you know, one point. Yeah. Uh, and that, 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 that's whatever side of the aisle you fall on. If you're talking, you know, just sort of mm-hmm. political. Well, philosophy. And, and that's one of the things that makes science work well is that it updates, right? When, if something shows that your idea before was wrong, then it's wrong and you just throw it in the dustbin of history and try to come up with a better idea, right? In fact, yeah. uh, that's the next thing I was going to ask about. What, is scientific knowledge more reliable, right? Well, as far as we can tell, it is to date the most reliable way humans have found for gaining knowledge of the natural world. It's managed to help us go from banging rocks together to sending people to the literal moon and getting rocks from there. And probably not banging them together, doing more interesting things with them than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the um, I have met uh, Tom Stafford. He was a Gemini and Apollo astronaut, and then he, uh, well, he retired as a general in the Air Force. He's responsible for the B two stealth bomber, and um, I have met him. He did Apollo ten, which was obviously the run up for Apollo eleven. Mm-hmm. The cool thing is his mother was in one of the land runs in Oklahoma in 1889, and she lived to see her son fly around the moon. That's amazing. <laughs> Which I've just always found to be, well, amazing. I mean, that's that's just so cool. And that's yeah. sort of what you were talking about, going from stone to this. And it was, for his mom, literally in her lifetime, what yeah, you're talking that, about. <laughs> that, that, is, that is impressive. So, yeah, like in science, right? If a previously established idea is found to be unreliable, then it's modified or discarded right you as mentioned before there was the idea of ptolemaic astronomy with everything going around the earth that got replaced with heliocentric ideas that got replaced with universal gravitation and that was replaced with general and special relativity and big bang cosmology right each one of those ideas was less wrong than the ones that came before uh, but each one so it was wrong at least in some ways and we can be quite sure that our idea of Big Bang cosmology is still not complete because there are certain things it doesn't explain. So all models, as they say, are wrong. Some are more useful than others. And that is one of the ways that science continues to proceed and gain new knowledge is by recognizing that everything is at least a little wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. And new data sets either, you know, changes, helps. It's all mm-hmm. good the more info you have. So Yep. And of course... There are p- ways that other ways that people have of looking at the world, philosophy, ideology, religion, and oftentimes these are not really testable claims. They're just ideas about how to act, and people may act or not act as they see fit. However, whenever those ideas do make testable claims about reality, such as trickle-down economics will raise the bar for everyone, or you know, uh, when the state owns everything, then everyone is equal, well, these are 
ideas with real world consequences that we can measure. We find that neither is a terribly great economic system, right? Uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need doesn't work much better than trickle down economics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. And so, you know, anytime you run up between ideology and the real world, well, the real world is going to win every time, at least in terms of determining which idea works best. Uh, if you want to talk about things like eternal salvation or peace of mind, well, you know, that's up to you, I suppose. It's not really something we can hypothesize about. It's not something you can test. It's not something you can make a general principle about or establish a society, on, or at least hopefully you won't establish a society on your personal preferences. So, you know, what are some good ways to understand the overall philosophy of science? What What is it that makes studying the natural world in a consistent, systematic way, what makes that produce good knowledge, right? Well, let's go back to one of the earlier people who really started formulating this philosophy of science, Francis Bacon. Uh, he was a famous English naturalist as the earth, you know, ph philosopher of nature, as they were sometimes called, or natural philosopher. Uh, he said, for first of all, we must prepare a natural and experimental history sufficient and good. And this is the foundation of all, for we are not to imagine or suppose, but to discover what nature does or may be made to do, right? Rather than start with your assumptions about what the world must be like and discard any idea that counters it, as many people who we will charitably call science deniers do, you have to deal with the universe as it actually is and form your ideas around that instead. So you may have heard of Charles Darwin. Uh, he famously said, there was much talk that geologists ought to only observe and not theorize. And I well remember someone saying that at this rate, a man might as well go into a gravel pit and count the pebbles and describe the colors. How odd it is that anyone should not see that all observation must be for or against some view if it is to be of any service. In other words, as mentioned before, your hypothesis has to come from somewhere. You have to have some ideas that you're basing your new ideas on. Explanations only work when you can explain things in terms of what you already do know. So if you are just making any old observation, but it doesn't have any bearing on the truth of an idea, it's not going to be terribly useful in a scientific context. Uh, you know, to use the example I mentioned earlier, the number of keys on my keyboard, let's face it, it's not really that important. As long as I can type on it and use it to send commands to my computer, then it's doing its job and it's not really that important if you know, I know exactly how many keys are in it. Um, so, you know, Darwin was, again, among those many scientists who understood that it is important to have some sort of goal or idea that you are testing with hypothesis, right? Uh, Correct. Naomi, Correct. Yeah, a, a living person, Naomi Oreskes, uh, she says, a conclusion becomes established not when a clever person proposes it or even a group of people begin to discuss it, but when the jury appears, the community of researchers reviews the evidence and concludes that it is sufficient to accept the claim. And this is one of the things that really differentiates science from religion or ideology or politics is that it is not based on who says something. It's not based on when something was said. It's based on do the ideas work in the real world? Do they convince people based on observable facts rather than feelings? If your ideas are able to convince people who may not have had them before, but who are still very knowledgeable in that field, well, it's not a guarantee that it's true, but especially when you can base new ideas off of it and come to practical application on them, there's a good chance that your idea is more true than the one that it supersedes. Yes. So uh, two more quotes going back to the beginning here. Uh, Richard Feynman, as I mentioned earlier, he didn't think philosophy of science was that important, but I would argue he was, in fact, a very good philosopher of science. He said this, first, we guess it. 
Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what it would imply. And then we compare the computation results to nature or experiment or experience, compare it directly with observations to see if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And the simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't matter how smart you are or who made the guess or what their name is. If it disagrees with the experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. And that really summarizes the experimental approach to science. It's not based on authority. It's not based on power. It's based on observable facts, right? So despite yes. his disparaging of the field, I think he was actually a pretty good philosopher of science himself. And finally, to round things out, uh, Lawrence Krauss that we mentioned earlier, uh, he also didn't much care for philosophers of science. And yet I think he is also a rather good philosopher of science himself. He may just not realize it. He says, science is a process for deriving facts about nature. It's a process for enhancing our understanding of the world around us and for separating nonsense from sense via empirical investigation, logical reasoning, and constant testing. Trying to define science as an activity that upholds the common good or is in the national interest distorts the fact that science is nothing more or less than a remarkably successful empirical process for uncovering the way the world works. At its best, this process is open-ended and curiosity-driven. And, you know, honestly, personally, curiosity has probably always been one of my greatest motivators. I want to know things that are true and reject things that are not. And really delving into the philosophy of science, which I have eh, to some extent, I certainly don't have a degree in it or anything, but it's really helped me think about the world in more precise ways and be able to more efficiently and more accurately accept or reject ideas as they come to me. Because I can see, are these based on facts? Do they have any sort of practical application? Are they open to change if better ideas come along? And if it does, then I'll accept it for as long as it continues to hold true and not be so wedded to an idea that if it ceases to hold true, that I will continue with it anyway. Now that right. way lies dogma. That way lies madness. Yes. Yes. So that, that is my brief overview of the philosophy of science. Any questions, comments? Uh, hopefully you've, I've been interesting enough for the last hour or so. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I would like to propose if you're listening to this and you're say very, very wealthy, I would like to test the, uh, theory that money does not buy happiness. So give me $10 million and we will determine if in three months I am a happier person. <laughs> uh, actually, but if I'm not mistaken, studies on that have already been done. And generally speaking, more money does buy more happiness. It's just a cliche that people say to try to excuse the fact that they don't have as much money as they want. It, it's the people that have money <laughs> that are saying that. <laughs> yes, it's either who have money that are saying that or the people who have none and wish they did. Yes, because I, I just feel like I would be a happier person, but I need someone to give me $10 million to test this hypothesis. Yes, well, to do it systematically, you need to do it for a larger number of people. And well, you could get in the experiment too. Yes, yes, this is true. Uh, I mean, that to, to take it back to the real world for a second, that is what politicians who are proposing things like universal basic income are trying to do. They yes. have this hypothesis that more money equals more happiness, and they want to see if they can actually make that happen. Yes, yes, for sure. You know, like, say, not being stressed out that an accident happened and you had this very large medical bill that you now have to pay. Right. <laughs> Versus you'd be happier if it was just paid for. Yep. So, yeah, hopefully that's been interesting. Um, I actually even run a... A virtual book club on the philosophy of science uh, in a Facebook group that Jack and I are part of, but we can put links to that in the show notes as well. Yes. Uh, if anyone's interested in discussing that with me, I'd be happy to do it more. 
Yes, yes, yes. Definitely look into it. It is, oh, dang it, now my brain just went off. <laughs> Deconvert. Um, anyway, I'll edit this in later. <laughs> uh, the, the, the group is called uh, Deconversion Anonymous. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it, it's especially catered to those who uh, have left or are considering leaving their religion. But uh, if that kind of topic sounds interesting to you, I'm sure we can make an exception. Yes, yes. Um, it's a great Facebook group, though. Everybody that is in it, um, I think with the exception of maybe one or two people, everyone that's in that group is super nice, very friendly, willing to give advice on anything or just even let you vent about something. And mm -hmm. um, completely non-judgmental. It's a, it's a great group. And there are several sort of book clubs that are affiliated with that. There's the Philosophy of Science um, that we have. A, there's a weekly meetup on Tuesdays. There's like a social meetup, you know, virtual social meetup on Saturday. Um, there's even uh, one that discusses um, sex that they have. So, um, you know, maybe you can join for that if you're, I don't know, into that kind of stuff. I hear a lot of people are. <laughs> yeah, people tend to like that. Um, anyway, um, well, no, I think this is a good, uh, a good uh, place just talking about the philosophy of science because as we move on through our monthly science with Lars this is a good foundation for us to build on going forward so yeah hopefully next month uh, we can talk about chemistry my wife has a PhD in biochemistry and I'll make sure to run things by her and uh, you can learn a bit more about the electrons and atoms we were talking about briefly today yes yes I look forward to it I'm looking forward to it well, I guess I'm going to go ahead and end the episode. I, once again, obviously appreciate you coming on. I enjoy our science with Lars, even though this is only the third one we've recorded. I, I'm enjoying them a lot. Glad oh, that, you're, me. that you're doing it. And um, yeah, look forward to many, many, many years of science with Lars, because I don't think we can run out of topics. Hopefully not. <laughs> So anyway, I'm going to uh, in the in the episode as I always do, but I guess uh, rather than the person I normally do, since this is more science affiliated, I'm going to end it like this. Remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Carl Sagan proud. Bye. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button. 